why I love what Bryson is doing there with the culture in Salem EV Free Church. We've got to know that church really well and to have a great partnership with them. And, and we've, we talk about a lot of different things together and, and we'll do more ministry together in the future. But this is one opportunity we have to really make a difference in um, a ministry that's doing some really wonderful work. So as we launch that Take Back Black Friday offering next week, I hope that you will join us with that. Bryson's actually gonna be here next week to talk more about that. And we'll have another video for you about another, another ministry international ministry that we're going to partner with as well. So that's really exciting. Hey, if you're new here, and I know we do have some new people here. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at First Free Church. Um, I see that probably a, an, a larger portion of our church is watching online right now. So I want to welcome all of you who are watching online. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, some people were here for the earlier service online as well, but I think a lot of people right now with the news going out this week are just saying, hey, we're just going to stay home and stay uh, safe. And that's perfectly fine if that's the right fit for you. Thanks for joining us this way. Uh, we want you to know that there are hundreds of people watching with you right now. And of course, people here in the room with us, we are all one church together, even though we feel very separated and very isolated. We're going to talk about that a little bit today and the impacts of that. Um, today, we're going to be in Colossians chapter three. You know, we've been studying the book of Colossians together. So if you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible handy, you can go to efree.org slash Bible and you will find a link to the text for today right there that you can study along with us. And also, if you're new here today and you want to get connected with us, we have a website you can go to, efree.org slash connect, and you can fill out your information for us there, whatever you want to give us, and we will get in touch with you. We'd love to get to know you if you're new. But this is also our hub for a lot of other things at the church. So if you need prayer for something, go to efree.org slash connect and let us know. We will pray for you. We have requests come through all the time that we as a staff and our prayer team and our elders are praying for. If you want to get involved in a ministry somewhere, this is how you do it. Go to efree.org slash connect, put in your information, click on the ministry that you want to learn more about or get involved with and serve in, and we will follow up with you. So this is kind of our hub for everything you need to know, efree.org slash connect. I want to highlight one ministry in particular right now, and that is our technical ministry. They have done a phenomenal job throughout this pandemic of keeping us up and running, streaming online, getting us new cameras and new equipment to make it a better experience for those watching online. It is amazing how far we have come just in the last seven or eight months. So our technical ministry staff and volunteers have done an absolutely incredible job. But as with everything that's going on right now, there, there are more and more people who are having to quarantine, having to get tested, having to wait until their test results come back so they can help out. And we are feeling that pressure around the church today in, in multiple areas. But one of those areas is our technical ministries. So if you are able to and would like to help out in technical ministries, go to efree.org slash connect. Let us know that you're able to help. You can come here on a Sunday morning, social distance to your heart's content, maybe sit behind a camera or something like that with just a little bit of training, have a mask on the whole time, and you can really help us out because, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people are watching online instead of coming in person, and technical ministries is more important than it ever has been before. So even if you have no experience, and you're not sure if you'd be able to do it, if you're willing to, we would love to talk with you and get you plugged into that ministry area. It is a great opportunity to help people stay connected to the body of Christ. All right, so the infomercial is over. Now I have to give you a warning. <clears throat> the warning is this. If you are a parent 
and I don't necessarily see any in here that I think we'd need to be concerned about because we actually warned our parents ahead of time. So parents of small children got an email about this. Um, but just in case, and if you're watching online right now, some of the stuff we're going to talk about in the message today is not necessarily the stuff you, you want little ears hearing. If you want to know what I'm talking about, go to Colossians 3, 5 real quick, skim through it, and you're going to get a handle on what we're going to be talking about today, okay? So it's, don't blame me, it's in the text, all right? It's in God's Word. It's the passage we're supposed to talk about today. Someone asked me after the first service. So did you like pick that passage or just get stuck with it? And I'm like, well, it's, it's the one that's next in the series that we need to talk about, but it's got some topics that are not for little ears. So if you are concerned about that, especially those of you watching at home right now, go to efree.org kids, and you will find all of our children's programming there. You can get them set up in another room. You can push pause on this video right now and come back later. This it won't be till a little later on in the message anyway, so you've got some time but don't say I didn't warn you. So let's get into our message for today. And to start us off, what I wanna do is I wanna put a statement on the screen and I want you to think about this statement and think about whether or not this is true for you, okay? Here's the statement. The 2020 is the most challenging year of my lifetime. Is that true for you? Has this been the most challenging year for you? And it may not be for you, but I know it is for a lot of people. I know for a whole lot of people, this year for a lot of different reasons has been the most challenging and difficult year they have ever faced. Certainly for, for the world, there are so many people for whom this is true. It all started out with a medical disaster, right? And at this point, millions and millions of people around the world have gotten sick Many have died or have had serious complications from this, and so the medical disaster has been absolutely terrible, but that then turned into an economic disaster. As stocks plunged and businesses have closed and continued to close, many people have lost their jobs. Many people in our church family have lost their jobs or had their pay drastically cut, and so we have a medical disaster that turned into an economic disaster, and both of those things are absolutely devastating. But those led to something else that is having a deeper impact, and that is a relational disaster. The medical disaster and the economic disaster have led to a relational disaster. Do you feel this in your life? Are you more isolated than you've ever been before? I know not everybody is, but for many people, are you struggling with a lack of connection Maybe you've lost the social gatherings that you're used to and you're just feeling it, that, that tension, that stress of not being able to be with other people the way you could before, of being able to walk up to somebody. This is what gets me. Normally on a Sunday morning, you're coming up and you're greeting people and you're giving hugs and you're shaking and all that kind of stuff. And now it's like, uh, I just got to keep my distance. And it's awkward and it's uncomfortable. It creates this relational tension between us where we don't feel the kind of closeness and connection that we had before. And yeah, there are certain people where, you know, maybe we're a little more comfortable with this, with our support bubble, I think they call it, the, the group of people that, that we're a little closer to, but everybody else is just like there's this distance and there's this separation. How many of you used to like to go out to eat after church every week? Those of you watching online right now, some of you haven't been to church since March or February, right? Some of you watching have actually never been to this building, and yet this is now your church home, and we miss being able to go out and, and just hang out with people after church and go out to lunch together and all that stuff has kind of gone away or it's going away even, even this week. Being able to come to church on a weekly basis or even just going to a baseball game or a hockey game or something like that and just enjoying our time together. Your Thanksgiving is probably gonna look a little different this year, right? And your Christmas will probably look a little bit different as well. 
And so for many of us, this relational disaster has led to a disconnect in our connection with other people, in our connection with other Christians. And so we have lost some of the accountability of being around other Christians, and that has led to another problem for us, and it's a spiritual disaster. What I'm seeing right now in our church, in our community, in our country is that the medical disaster led to an economic disaster, led to a relational disaster, led to a spiritual disaster. And a part of that is because when the body of Christ is united and working properly together, it builds itself up in love, the Bible says. But when it's separate from each other and it feels disconnected from each other, the spiritual protection that is meant to be there from the family of God coming together and encouraging each other and convicting each other and teaching each other and all those things we're supposed to be doing, praying for each other, that disappears and there's a, a barrier of spiritual protection that starts to weaken when we're distant from each other. We are supposed to bear each other's burdens. It's hard to do that when we're not around each other and in each other's lives and sharing transparently with each other. We're supposed to be praying for each other. We're supposed to share the load. We're, we're supposed to teach each other. We're supposed to correct each other when needed. Just being around other Christians and living life with other Christians creates a sort of spiritual protection for us and accountability for us where it reminds us of the things that we shouldn't be doing and we need to stay away from and it keeps us focused on the things that we should be doing and we need to pursue. And when we lose that connection with the body of Christ, we lose that spiritual protection in our lives. That accountability that helped us to stay on the right path. It's one reason why staying connected to a local church and being part of a group within that church is, is always important, but it's, I think, more important now than ever to have that connection, to pursue it, to make it a priority in our lives because when we lose that spiritual protection, here's what happens. We slip into old sinful patterns and habits. Have you seen this? Maybe not in you, but in other people. Have you seen this where we, we're losing that sort of spiritual protection, that sort of accountability in the body of Christ and so, and so we start to feel less accountable and we start to slip more into sinful thinking? And maybe it's a critical spirit that was sort of kept in check before but now it's led to some gossip and slander. Or maybe it's a sexual sin that you thought was under control before but now that you're just kind of on your own a lot of times and you're not around other people as much, it's, it's, it's hard to, to keep that under control. Maybe it's a preoccupation with money, especially as the economy goes on this roller coaster up and down and you're worried about money and it becomes an obsession for you and it's just the thing you think about all the time instead of your relationship with Jesus. It could be a heart of bitterness or anger that was kept in check before when things were normal, but be honest with me, be really honest with yourself. Isn't your fuse a little bit shorter these days? Isn't your fuse just a little bit shorter on the things that could upset you? There's more tension. There's more stress than ever before. This year is really, really hard for most people. And so the temptation to sin may seem stronger than ever. Or sin may seem more available or more justifiable than ever before. That's why Colossians is such a wonderful letter for us to be studying right now. And I can't take credit for it. It's actually one of our elders, Mark Vigil, who suggested that we go through this letter. And it has been a huge encouragement and a blessing to me as I hope it has to you. I wanna recap the setting of this so that you get a sense for where we're at going into this. Colossians was written by a man named Paul. He was an apostle. He was sitting in prison at the time he wrote this letter. He was probably in Rome. And the people he's writing to he has never met before. This is a church that he did not start and he has not met these people. He's heard about them because people who he probably led to the Lord over in Ephesus actually started this church. So these are maybe his spiritual grandchildren. 
And we've been calling Colossians a rumble strip letter. A rumble strip letter. Other letters were more like guardrail letters. Corinthians, the, the first and second Corinthians, they were guardrail letters. They were a letter written to people who were off track and bumping up against the guardrails and needed to get back on track. And there are other letters like that. Colossians isn't like that. In Colossians, Paul says multiple times, you guys are on the right path. You're doing the right things. I want you to stay the course. I want you to keep yourself focused on the right things. But there are some warnings, some dangers to the right and to the left. And so it's a rumble strip letter. It's just putting down some rumble strips to say, oh, careful, don't, don't get off track here. Stay where you're going. And I think 2020 has brought so many distractions and so many, so many complications that take our eyes off of Jesus and cause us to want to swerve off the path. And maybe you're already there in your life. Maybe right now you're recognizing that there are some things in your life that you have allowed to grow distant from Jesus. You have gotten off track. You've allowed some sinful habits into your life that weren't as big of a problem before the pandemic started. Maybe that's the case for you. Maybe not either way. We have to be careful, just like the Colossians, to stay on the right path. And we're going to talk about how to do that today. And that involves some do's and some don'ts, some rules. Now, here's the problem. We just spent the last several weeks talking about how the rules aren't what makes you right with God. The rules aren't what makes you acceptable to God. Paul talked for the first two chapters of Colossians, and we've covered it over the last several weeks about how it's Jesus Christ who saves you, and there aren't extra rituals or traditions or religious practices that you have to do to be right with God. That's not how any of it works. It's believe it in Jesus Christ who died on the cross and paid for your sins and forgives your sins when you believe in him. But that doesn't mean there aren't some rules to follow. But we follow the rules because we are saved and believe in Jesus, not so that we can be saved. We follow the rules not because we want to be made right with God, not because we want him to ultimately judge us as having done enough good, because God has already judged us through Jesus, through the righteousness of Jesus that was applied to our lives when we trusted in him. And so God has already judged us pure and holy in his sight. But that doesn't mean we immediately become pure and holy right now in this life presently. That's what we've been talking about for the last several weeks, the couple of chapters in Colossians. But since God made us, he created us, he has a pretty good idea of what works best in this life, how we're supposed to live our lives if we want the best life we can possibly have, the one that's most fulfilling and rewarding in him. God knows how that works. And even if you're not a follower of Jesus right now, which you may not be, following God's rules for life are going to lead to a better life. I promise you, because God created us, he knows what works best. And when we do trust in Jesus, he gives us a new spiritual life and the ability to live out this new life with heavenly values. In fact, the last, last week we talked about bringing the realities of heaven into our lives on earth, the values of heaven and making them present realities in our lives today. And that means there are some do's and don'ts. But Paul doesn't start the letter with the do's and don'ts. He gives all the qualifications first, wants people to understand what's most important that Jesus Christ is the center of it all, him being our focus. The do's and don'ts are not how we're made right with God, but there are some do's and don'ts. And the problem is throughout the century, since Paul wrote this letter, Christians, well-meaning Christians, have looked at the do's and don'ts in the Bible and have thought that that was the most important thing, that that was what they should focus on. And this is why Paul doesn't start there. He gives us the context and then gets to the rules that we're gonna get it, start to get into today and, and next week as well. 
but they're not given to us, these do's and don'ts, these rules in the Bible are not given to us to make us right with God. They're, they're not given to us so that we can inspect or criticize other people even. That's not the purpose behind God's rules. Last week I was talking about this with Peter Vetter out in the lobby after the message and he gave me this great analogy that I warned him I would be totally stealing and sharing with you today. So here is the analogy. He said, when you buy a new car, that, that new car comes with something that's designed to help you keep that car running properly so that you change the oil regularly and, and change the filter and put the right kind of gas in the car and have the right tire pressure for, for the air in the tires. And when the treads get too low, you gotta, tra- you gotta you know, check the treads and make sure that you replace the tires and you don't wanna leave the lights on all night long or it'll drain the battery. To help you keep that car in good shape, every new car comes with what? An owner's manual. There's a little book, and I don't know the last time you cracked that thing open. It's some good reading. But there's an owner's manual that if you don't at least follow the stuff that's in there, even if you're not actually studying it, if you don't follow the stuff that's in there about oil changes and tire pressure and, all the, and the gas in the car, all the other things, then you are going to have major problems with your car. If you don't keep the tires inflated, you're not going to have those tires very long. If you don't change the oil regularly, you're going to have some engine problem along the way. If you don't follow the manual's instructions for how to keep your car in good shape, that car's not going to be in good shape for very long. You're good. It might be nice for a little while. I mean, it'd be really convenient and less expensive if I didn't have to replace the oil in my vehicle. If I didn't have to replace the tires, I've got some work that needs to be done on my truck right now. And, and the mechanic told me that ah, I could put it off for a little bit, but if I put it off more than six months, I'll be sorry. There's some things we have to do to keep our cars in good working order. If we don't do them, even though it might seem nice for a little while, eventually we're going to pay for that. It's going to be a problem for us. Well, the Bible is our owner's manual for life. And yeah, it's got some rules for us to follow in it, but the rules are not a checklist of things to make God happy with you. He does want us to follow them, but they're a helpful list to keep you from ruining your engine or messing up your tires or putting the wrong kind of fuel in the engine. When you follow God's rules for life, you'll find you make better choices, you you have fewer regrets, you have a more fulfilling and rewarding life, you'll enjoy it more. You'll be more satisfied with life when you live life God's way and you'll have more confidence in life too because you'll be living life God's way instead of trying to get your way. And who doesn't want that kind of life? Who doesn't want that kind of satisfaction and enjoyment in life by knowing that they're not making all sorts of choices that though they seem fun in the moment are actually gonna mess themselves up down the road? And one thing I want you to notice, I said nothing about living life God's way so that you could get better health or so that you could get more money. Some people think that that's what the Christian life is all about and some preachers unfortunately preach that if you usually send them a certain amount of money, you're going to be guaranteed that you're going to have more wealth and more health, but that's not what the Bible says. The the way the heavenly lifestyle works is that when you live life God's way, you can have satisfaction and contentment and joy in life whether you have a lot of wealth or very little, whether you have great health or poor health. That kind of thinking that it's all about money and health, that's the way the world thinks about life, but that's contrary to to the way the Bible talks about life and what, what the heavenly values are. So the Bible is the owner's manual to teach us from the creator himself what's going to lead to the life, to life at its best for us. Whatever situation we're in, how can we make the best choices to live a better life that's going to keep the car running smoothly, going to keep us from breaking down, going to keep us from having problems? And so we have some do's and don'ts that come from this owner's manual. 
But please don't think of these as harsh rules meant to sort of clamp you down and keep you in line. Think of these as helpful guidelines to keep the car running smoothly. So with all of that in mind, if you're in Colossians chapter three, let's read this together. Colossians three, verse five says this. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other. For you have stripped off your old sinful nature and its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Let's take a moment and pray now and ask God to teach us from his word. Heavenly Father, thank you for this letter to the Colossians and what it teaches us during a very difficult time. And this is a difficult message. This is a challenging passage, Lord, to wrestle with, but I think some of us really, really need it. And so I pray that you would give us some things from Colossians chapter three that we can take and apply to our lives right now, some things that this week will make a difference to us, God. Help us to continue to live in community as much as we can and help us to keep as much spiritual protection up as we can. Help us to stay on the right path and avoid some of the things that you know are gonna cause us problems if we get stuck in them. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus, amen. I've got a few things for you today, and if you'd like to take notes, I've got stuff you can write down here. The first point I'm gonna make to you is that little sins are a big deal to God. Little sins are a big deal to God. Back in the year 2000, J.P. Morgan, I'm sure you're all familiar with J.P. Morgan, they had a major problem one day where their website went down for the entire day. Not only that, they lost all of their emails. So all their email communication and their website went down for one day in the year 2000. And that means that all of their clients could not email their brokers, they couldn't email their traders, and what's worse, they couldn't even get online to see what the problem was because the whole website was down. Do you have any idea what brought this $21 billion company at the time to its knees digitally where they could not communicate with each other and and it caused a huge problem for a ton of people? It was a domain renewal bill for $35 that was missed and not paid. A $35 bill was all it took to cause a massive problem for this company and jpmorgan.com and all their emails went down one day. Sin is a lot like that. Even the sin that seems small to us, the sin that we become used to in our lives, the sin that sort of becomes a casual thing for us, those little sins are a big deal to God and they can cause big problems. That's why Paul says, so put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Not just stop doing them, not just try to avoid them, but put them to death. Don't mess around with it. Don't let it stick around. Don't stick it in the closet for a while so that when you're discouraged or lonely, you can pull it back out again. Put it to death. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. He says, so if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. 
it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, obviously, I don't think that Jesus meant literally this is the way you're supposed to deal with sin. And if you think that Jesus literally meant this is how you're supposed to deal with sin, the next week I expect you to walk in missing some body parts. I think Jesus was speaking figuratively here. In the same message, he talks about how, he says, you, you have heard that it's uh, a sin to murder someone and the law says you're not supposed to murder, but I'm telling you that if you even hate someone in your heart, it's the same as the sin of murder. He says, you've heard about the sin to commit adultery, but I tell you, if you lust after someone in your heart, it's the same as if you've committed the sin of adultery. See, really what Jesus is getting at is this is a heart issue. It's a matter of the heart, and Jesus is using hyperbole to get across his point. He's sort of speaking in a rabbinical style, giving this extreme example to say this is such a big deal. Sin is such a big deal that you should be willing to take drastic steps to remove it in your life. By the way, this also means that you've got some responsibility here. You've got some control. You've got some agency over the sin that exists in your life. The command that Paul gives to put sin to death, put these earthly things lurking within you to death, it's an imperative. It means that you have some control over this. You are supposed to do something about this. The idea is not that we just sit back and let God sort of passively make it all happen to us. There are two, in, two people involved in this process. It is a collaboration between us and God. And yes, it's, it's not all up to us and we can't do it on our own. But no, it doesn't just happen automatically without us taking some action in response to the commands that God gives us. We are to put these things to death. It's not a passive activity that we just let go and let God. You have to be actively involved in this process. You have to say no to yourself about the things that God says are not designed for you to do in this life. The old self is constantly looking for excuses for why we sin. We, we are very good at justifying sin, aren't we? We're so good at coming up with reasons for it. I learned a new phrase recently. John Richardson shared this with me and I think it's extremely helpful. He says, sometimes we are really good at coming up with noble excuses to sin. Don't we have some noble excuses to sin? I've heard Christians give a lot of these. Like, well, it's my upbringing. I mean, this is my upbringing. This is the family I came from. So, you know, this is just the way I am, the way I'm gonna act. I know it's kind of contrary to God's word, but it's my upbringing, so it's okay for me. You just have to understand that. I've heard Christians give that excuse. Or you just have to understand what they did to me. If you would understand what they did to me, then you'd understand why my retaliation is justified, even though, yeah, it's not what the Bible says I should do, but because of what they did to me, it should be okay for me to do this. I've heard that one given. Or how about this one? It isn't gossip. I'm just concerned. This isn't gossip. I'm just concerned. And I think you should be concerned too. And no, I haven't really gone to that person and asked them about this or talked to them about this thing, but I just want to let you know so you're concerned. In fact, let's pray about it together. This is a prayer request. Another common one is this. Well, the system's stacked against me. I, I can't, you know, because of my boss and, and this other thing over here and, and my upbringing, all these different things, this whole system is stacked against me. So if I do some things that are contrary to God's word, but it's because the system was stacked against me, then it's okay. Then it's justified. And the truth is we may have some very good explanations for why we sin, but none of them are excuses for sinning. None of them are valid justifications to say, well, it's okay for me to do these things that God says I'm not supposed to do. Paul says, whatever's going on with these earthly sinful things working in you, put them to death. It's a serious thing. Jesus said, if you're struggling with this, then cut off a body part. <laughs> That's how seriously God treats this. Little sins are a big deal 
to God. One of our favorite phrases around the Bowers household, by the way, is you can't control what they do to you, but you can control how you respond. You can't control what they do to you, but you can control how you respond. And I believe that my kids are gonna be absolutely sick of that phrase by the time they get 18 because they have to hear it all the time. So what do we need to put to death? Well, Paul gives us 11 categories of sin, 11 categories of sin that we need to put to death. And we're just gonna kinda do a 30,000 foot flyover of this list, all right? We're gonna focus mostly on the first four and then we'll touch on the last few there as well. And parents, this is your last warning, by the way. If you do not want little ears hearing what we're about to cover in Colossians 3, 5, I would go to efree.org slash kids, pause this video, get them set up in another room. We're gonna talk about this because the Bible talks about it. It's important to talk about, but there may be some words and phrases here that you're not ready for them to hear. So that was your chance. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust and evil desires. All of these are in the same context of having to do with sexual sins. That's 11 categories of sin and the first four are all about sex. And you might be thinking, well, Paul, there's a lot of sin in the world. Why would you need four categories focused on sex? That's an awful lot of attention on sex, isn't it? This is already the most times I've used sex in a message. It's not a word we hear oftentimes. The Bible actually says a lot about it. Paul, when he's giving his admonition to Christians and telling them what to do and not do, he talks about it a a surprising amount. And why would we have this focus in the Bible on sex so much, even though we don't always talk about it a lot in the church setting? Well, look at the culture around us. What sells? Sex sells. What is in advertising everywhere? It's all about sex. It's a very casual atmosphere when it comes to sex and so many people, men and women, are either addicted to sex or addicted to something sexual. Now this is nothing new. It's easy to think, well, you know, this culture is so corrupted and it's so bad and it used to be so wonderful. No, it wasn't so wonderful. This is not a new thing for humanity. In fact, the culture at the time when Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians was probably in many ways a little bit worse than we're at right now. The Roman culture was very deviant when it comes to sexuality. And although we you know, seem to be headed in that direction. Now, if, if there are you know, young people, teenagers, um, any, any kind of kids that your parents were like, no, I think you can handle it, and you're watching right now, I want you to know that sex is not a bad thing. Sex is not a bad thing. Sex is a wonderful thing. It was given by God for amazing purposes and it's awesome, but what's happened is the world comes along and distorts what God made to be good. The world distorts what God made to be good. In fact, that's what all of sin is. All of sin is a distortion of what God designed for good to use it for destruction. God designed sex to be this wonderful, intimate, amazing connection between a husband and a wife. He said in Genesis 2 that a a husband and wife, they need to leave their mother and father, so they leave their families, they come together, they join one family, they become husband and wife, they get married, and then they become one flesh. And in that order, you leave your family, you create a new family, you're married, and then you become one flesh. You have sex. The two become one. And that's the the way that God designed it. But sin, listen, sin breaks everything it touches. Sin breaks everything it touches. And the beautiful passion that a husband and wife have for each other has become distorted in this world by this cheap imitation for God's design for sex. It's a wonderful thing, but it's been distorted by sin. The first category that Paul gives here is translated for us as sexual immorality. And this phrase refers to basically any sexual activity outside of marriage. In the ancient Roman world, 
Sex outside of marriage was treated very casually, uh, which, as you'll notice, is, is kind of true for many in our world today as well. Um, but especially for men back then, it was a normal part of the culture, which I don't think is where we're at today. It was a normal part of the culture for them to just regularly go out and utilize prostitutes. That was a very normal thing for Roman men, Gentile men in general uh, back then to utilize prostitutes. And so this is Paul probably primarily addressing that and saying, don't be like the world, the people of the world and the people you used to be. And in doing that, this is a, a deviation of what God designed for sex. Don't take part in sex outside of marriage. The next category that Paul gives is impurity. And impurity is a really broad phrase. It can refer to a lot of things. In this context here, which is a, a sexual context, he's referring to any sexual activity that's immoral. He doesn't give a list. He doesn't give the specific things. He just says, anything that is sexually immoral, put it to death. You're not supposed to have that in your life. Then he gives a third category, which is lust. Now, here's the way to think about lust, because I know this can be confusing for people sometimes. Lust is dwelling on anything that you want but can't have. And I mean dwelling as in like obsession, like coveting, like I want that thing. That's what lust is all about. It's not just saying, man, I would love to have that new car. Or I would love that new Xbox Series X that, that just came out. Man, oh, I can't wait to get one of those. Like, that's, that's fine. You can have those desires. That is not lust. Lust is when you say, I want that, and that's all I'm going to think about, and I, I want it really bad. In fact, I want it so bad that if the opportunity came up and I could steal that from somebody, I would take it. I want it so bad that I can't get it off my mind. I want it so bad that it's taken a priority in my mind over my walk with Jesus or over my relationships with other people. I just, I crave that thing. And if I had the chance, I would do something shady to even get that thing. Paul is talking in this context here about sexual lust. And I want to say something about this because this can be um, a challenging topic for people. I want you to know where a line is here. The problem with lust is not the first look. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. The problem with lust is not when that person first walks into your view and your eyes spot it and they're figuring out everything and your neurons start to fire and you go, whoa, that is attractive. Woo, that's a good looking person. Okay, that all happens automatically. That is at most temptation. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are and he didn't sin. The temptation is not the sin. The problem is not the first look. The problem is the second look. The problem is going back for more. The problem is dwelling, dwelling on something that you can't have and letting yourself crave it or fantasize about it. That's when it moves from being a temptation to being lust. You know, King David, he walked up on his roof one day. You know the story. And he's looking down because his palace is higher than everybody else. And there's all these rooftops below and he can see everybody. And, and back then, if you've ever, ever been to Israel, which a lot of you have gone to Israel uh, a year and a half ago, um, you know that the way this whole thing is structured where King David's palace is, it's up on the top of the hill and the houses are all below. And the way they do it is their, their top level of their house is actually living space. It's a place where you can go up and walk around and hang your clothes up to dry and do all that kind of stuff. Well, David looks out over these houses and he sees Bathsheba, he doesn't know it's Bathsheba at the time, bathing herself on top of her roof. Now, why she was doing that, what that was all about, I do not know. But what I do know is that David surveyed his kingdom and glanced across, and I've stood in that area and looked across the tops of these houses. You can see right over top of these houses. And he looked across, and his eyes registered something that looked really, really good to him. And for a moment, he probably kept on moving, and then he had a choice to make. Do I go back and stare, or do I say, that's not for me? 
Do I go back and dwell on that because I have this access right now and I can view it and she won't even know it? Do I go back and look at her some more, what's really pleasing to my eyes? Or do I say, that is not my wife. That is not someone God has given me that access to. And and God has said he doesn't want that kind of relationship in my life. And so I am going to say no to that. And what did David choose to do? Well, you already know the answer. He took a second look. He took a second look and then he stared some more and then he asked about her and he got her name and he invited her over, but it all started with that second look. That's where we have the problem of lust. Evil desires is the fourth category. It's very similar. Um, And here it's referring to evil sexual desires. You know, especially in this day and age, but I'm sure it's always been true. It's just we have more access to things today. There are people who would probably never act out on something sexually, but they will fantasize about it. They will imagine it. They will imagine all sorts of things that they know would be wrong if they were to actually do those things, but they think, well, I'm not going to do those things. I'm just going to imagine. I'm going to daydream about it. I'm going to fantasize about it. And this is what Paul has in mind here by evil desires. There are people who would never go have sex with a prostitute or have an affair or anything like that, but they will use their idle time to fantasize about it. So with all of these four categories of sexual sins, what is Paul's advice to these? What does he want us to do? Well, as long as you don't act on it, it's okay. Is that what he's saying? Or as long as no one gets hurt, it's okay. Isn't that what the world says? There's no victim here. No one gets hurt. It's okay. What does Paul say? Put it to death. Don't treat it simply. Don't take it lightly. Don't make it not a big deal. It's a big deal to God. Little sins are a big deal to God. You have to put it to death. And you know what's interesting? Every year, new research comes out from secular researchers who are acknowledging the fact that even when we don't act on these things, the fact that we dwell on them and get addicted to them in our minds and we make them a priority for us in our, in our minds and in our thinking, it can rewire the brain, it can change the way dopamine works, it can do all sorts of stuff to us that is unhealthy. There are movements that are completely detached from Christianity, from God's word, that are saying it's not good to do these things. It's not that God just wants to clamp you down and keep you in line. He knows what's best for us. He wrote the book He wrote the owner's manual. He knows these things are not good for us. And so he tells us not to do these things because these things are unhealthy for us. They're not how he designed us to work. They are distortions of what he wants for us. So little sins are a big deal to God. Now I know I just spent most of my time on the sexual sins. And there are more sins to cover here, but these are self, fairly self-explanatory. So let me walk through them quickly and leave you with a couple of closing thoughts. The first one here is greed. When money or material things take priority over our relationship with God. And Paul says, that's idolatry. That's that's the same thing as being an idol worshiper. We sometimes think of an idol worshiper as someone who sets up a statue and bows down before it and puts incense all over it. But Paul says, you know what else is idolatry? Loving money. Money's not the problem, but it's the love of money that's the problem. Anger toward another person is one of those in there as well. And then the next level of anger, which is rage. Anger means I'm really upset and I'm dwelling on that anger towards you, but rage means I'm just fuming at you. In fact, I might do something bad to you. In fact, the next one is malicious behavior, which means I desire to harm someone. I wanna actually harm someone because of my anger toward them. Slander refers to ruining someone else's reputation. You know, Jesus said that if, if a brother or sister in Christ 
sins against you or offends you in some way, that your responsibility is to go talk with them personally and privately so that there's an opportunity to discuss it and perhaps apologize or explain or whatever is necessary. Uh, but when we go around and telling other people instead of what, of what they did that hurt us in some way, instead of following what Jesus said to do, we're ruining their reputation. That's slander. Dirty language means words that should not be said. And this is subjective based on the culture. The list of words for Paul was different than the list of words for us today. He doesn't give us a list. He just says dirty language, vulgar language. These are things that would refer to some activity that's sinful that we might use as sort of a, a curse word or a vulgar word. And I want to note here that Paul's intention in writing this is not for us to become other people's dirty language inspectors. His intention is for us to evaluate our own lives and put those things to death in our own lives and to get rid of them in our own lives. This is a personal command that he gives us, individual responsibility. And the last one he says is lying to each other. Lying to other Christians breaks the trust that we are to have in the body of Christ. It it causes us to lose respect for other people. It can also be a part of slander. We can lie about another person and then that becomes slander as well. And all of these things are the opposite of the heavenly values. We talked last week about God's intention for us to bring the heavenly values into our lives on earth. And these, this is the what not to do list. These are the distortions of the life God wants us to live. Not because he's trying to spoil our fun, but because he wants us to live the life he designed us for. And every one of these, these um, categories of sin has natural consequences that come with them. Consequences in our mind, consequences in our relationships, consequences in our lives, and we allow ourselves to to dwell on these sins and allow these sins into our lives when we don't get rid of them, we don't put them to death, we face real consequences and we don't live the life that God wants us to live. But I'm gonna add one more category. It's not a category that's spelled out by Paul, but we can get there by implication. It's in verse 11. And Paul says, in this new life, It doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Now that is a wonderful truth. That in Jesus Christ, there is no difference between us regardless of race or class or skin color or anything else. All are welcome in God's family. There is no distinction. There's no hierarchy. We have equal value in Christ. That does not mean that we're all suddenly exactly the same. That does not mean that we just become this complete complete homogenous group where there are no differences among us. In fact, God values the diversity that we have and he even makes it worse. God creates more diversity in the body of Christ than people had when they came in. Did you know that? Because God gives you, when you trust in Jesus, he gives you spiritual gifts that he doesn't give other people. God actually creates more variability and more diversity in the body of Christ, in his church, than what they had when they came in. Our God loves diversity. He is a creative God. He knows that these differences actually make us stronger and make us work together better. But here's the the thing. The world uses this in the wrong way. There is no room for discrimination in the new life. There's no room for discrimination in the new life, but the world uses this the wrong way. See, the way God works is the Jew is not supposed to say to the Gentile back in Paul's day that you are lesser than me because you're a Jew. The city Christian can't say to the rural Christian, you're not welcome here. We're not a church for you. That's not how it works in the body of Christ. God created us to be diverse. He made us more diverse, but the world distorts this and twists God's desire for diversity. And the world uses diversity as a lever to gain power and money. 
The world uses diversity as a lever to gain power and money. God's design for diversity is that it would be a beautiful expression of his creativity in this world. And yet the world, the sinful world, uses it as a tool for gaining an advantage over people. That is not how God designed it to work. That's discrimination. That's contrary to heavenly values. In Christ, understand, those differences, those distinctions don't disappear. We actually become more diverse. But they just don't matter the way they do to the world. The differences don't matter in the same way. The differences become a positive. The differences become a way that we all work together to better reach people, to better build each other up, to better encourage each other, to bring different gifts and abilities and tools and resources to the table that not everyone has, but someone in the group has. And so together we become a complete body of Christ. That is the way God designed it. And the world takes and distorts that into discrimination. Now I want to leave you with something that I skipped And I skipped this intentionally because I'll be honest with you, this is not the most fun message to give. Last week was really fun. I got to share all kinds of personal stories and things that related to points in the message. And when it came to the sexual immorality talk, I didn't have a lot of funny personal stories to share with you. There's not a lot of funny stories that I can share with you when we're having the sex talk, okay? So this is not that fun message, but the last part of this message I think is amazing, I think it's beautiful, and I wanted to save this for the end. So it's Colossians 3.10. We skipped this intentionally, here's why. Paul says, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. This is probably my new favorite Bible verse. And the reason it's a new one to me is I've always read this before in a different translation. And so I never picked up on the meaning that was in there. It's in there. I've looked at the original text, but I never, I never understood it this way. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. I know it would be so easy to walk away from today and think it's all about the don'ts. It's all about what you're not supposed to do. And that's not really the main point of this. See, yeah, those are there, but that's not where Paul started and that's not where he's gonna end up. The real goal is not just to put off the old self, which we need to do, not just to avoid the sinful distortions of what God wants for us, which we need to do, but the real goal here is to focus on Jesus Christ, to focus on God to learn more about him and become like him. I love the way this is put here. There's two words knowledge and image, to have more knowledge of God and to be made into the image of God, to be like him in his likeness. So to enjoy the new life, this is my last point, to enjoy the new life, get close to the creator. If you want to enjoy the new life, get close to the creator. And this is how we're going to end on a positive note. Because over lunch today, as you're talking about the sermon and sharing what you liked about it and didn't like, And it'd be great for you to spend some time on the sin categories and say, well, this is the one that I struggle with or small group tonight, you can talk about that. But what I really want you to focus on is how are you going to be more like your creator this week? What are you gonna do to get to know him better and become more like him? That's what he wants. Not just to put off the old, but to put on the new life, to embrace it, to welcome it, to enjoy it. And when you do that, you are gonna have such a better life. I promise you whether it's in great health or poor health, whether it's lots of wealth or no wealth, no matter what situation you're going through right now, you can learn to enjoy that and have joy in the midst of that if your focus is on God becoming like him and knowing him better. So maybe it's gonna be by spending time in his word every day this week. 
Maybe it's gonna be by spending time in prayer this week. Maybe it's gonna be by spending more time with other Christians who encourage you in this effort and they're growing more like him and knowing him better just as you are and you're all helping each other grow together. Maybe you do that through an online meeting this week, whatever it is. I hope your focus this week will be on putting on that new life in Jesus and you will find that as you do that, saying no to the other things is gonna get easier and easier because your focus is gonna be on God. I wanna pray for you right now. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, thank you for your word and what it teaches us. And God, sometimes these are challenging passages. Um, sometimes there are, there are aspects in here that, that make us uncomfortable, that convict us, that help us to realize that, that we've messed up in different ways. And there may be people in this room right now or watching online right now who would say, boy, I've, I've really messed up this year. And I've allowed some sinful patterns to get lodged into my mind I've kind of gotten off the path. And Lord, I pray that this message today and this passage from Colossians would be a rumble strip for them that would help them to wake up and get back on the right path. Not just by following the list of don'ts, but by focusing their attention on you, by learning to know you more and becoming more like you every single day. Lord, we pray that you would help us in that pursuit. And God, we worship you now. We wanna get to know you. We wanna worship you as we sing together. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.